Hey, I'm Whitney Walker, and this is the Women Waken podcast, where I interview guests who are in the field of healing and spiritual work using their unique gifts of the divine feminine. We talk all about these amazing gifts that these particular guests have and how they're bringing them forth in the world. On this episode, I welcome ancient Indian goddess expert Padma Menon. Padma brings a very unique perspective to the show as she is focused on Indian philosophy and the teachings of ancient Indian goddesses. Padma is a dancer, a philosopher, and her focus is on reviving ancient practices of dance contemplation. On this episode, Padma offers really powerful insight on what is goddess tradition and examples of goddesses and their specific traditions. We have a beautiful conversation about what it means to find our own inner source of truth and ability and our gifts and to bring them forth, what it means to really connect with your body and to really see the other side of duality and how all things are connected and really nothing is separate. So take a listen, enjoy, and here's my guest. Hello, Padma. Welcome to the Women Waken podcast. Hello, Whitney. It's uh, such an honor to be here. So happy to be with you. So wonderful to have you, Padma. Very excited to explore your work and your focus. It's very unique. I was really excited. You reached out to me, I think a few a few months ago, maybe mm-hmm. maybe last year. I think you had heard the podcast and yes. had heard an episode and were interested and intrigued by it. And you reached out and you shared that you have a focus on ancient Indian goddesses. And I was very excited because you also focus on dance and I'm a dancer. Yes. I've been a dancer all my life. I've, dance is a huge part of my life. And so combining the two, I just love that idea. And I'm very familiar with a lot of the Indian goddesses and the idea of, you know, ancient Indian tradition, but I've never really gotten into it or had a guest that was very focused on that. So this is very cool. Whitney, so wonderful to be here. Thank you again. And uh, yes, I have listened to some of your podcasts. And uh, before I begin, I just want to acknowledge the service that you do, the wonderful work you do in your own practice in um, holding something like the divine feminine with the seriousness and integrity that it deserves, because there are so many offerings out there that I feel um, are quite frivolous and sometimes trivialize the, you know, the, the rigor and the depth of the work. And so I really want to honor the, the seriousness with which you hold this, this practice and this work, and also for the generous way in which you invite people, other people who are also doing serious work to your podcasts and share their work with your listeners. I'm I'm really um, happy to be here because I feel like you've got a lot of discerning listeners who are looking for something um, that is uh, integral and that is serious. I loved the episode you did with Ramona Mukherjee. Um, you know, her work uh, resonates with me and uh, I loved listening to that. And I also listened to a couple of other podcasts that you did. So absolutely thrilled to be here. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Ramona is wonderful. She's a fellow therapist as well. So it was fun to have yes. her, her on explore so many great concepts. 
All right. So let's go ahead and get started. Padma, I would love for you to share. I gave a little bit of an intro about you, but I'd love for you to share with the audience what your work is, what is, you know, what's your life all about at this point? I know you live in Australia, which is very exciting. You're my first guest from Australia or living in Australia. So that's pretty amazing. I'd love to hear about that and just what you are up to there. So Whitney, what I do is I offer the ancient Indian goddess tradition, which is something that pre-exists all of the mainstream Indian philosophies that are very popular today. Many of the philosophies today and practices, including yoga, they really come from the more the Vedic traditions. So before the Vedic traditions, they were particularly uh, the Dravidian culture. They had their own very embodied goddess-centered traditions and dance was very, very central to that tradition. In fact, the the idea of uh, or the practice of Shiva, the dancing body comes from these traditions. So the central role that dance had as a spiritual inquiry, as the way of manifesting the divine was very important in these traditions. And because they were embodied, they were, and because they were women-led, because of the goddess focus, it was, it was uh, women who were custodians and who led these practices. But precisely because of that, there was this whole movement away from the body towards the mind. And this was something that was quite universal. It happened, as you know, um, in traditions all over the world. There was this movement from the, the embodied consciousness towards the mental consciousness. And so it happened in India too. And we're talking about, you know, thousands of years ago that this happened and uh, things became much more textual, much more analytical. The body became somewhat suspicious. It became something that was lesser than the spirit. And so we lost uh, the the integrity. We So dance survived, but the, the purpose of dance as a modality of spiritual inquiry and of embodying that divine experience was somewhat eroded. And so for me, a big question in my life has been about um, how to offer this dance with that, uh, with that traditional role of dance. And that came because of lots of accidents in my life. It's not what I set out to do. I had no idea at all about this role of dance. It just so happened that um, many things happened, you know, the kind of teacher that I had, the, the particular trajectory I followed where I found constantly that, um, you know, I sometimes think that I've lived many lifetimes in one life. And I found that in each time, it was the dance that played a really big role in transformation. And, and I began to bring my attention more and more to what's happening in this embodied practice and how I can offer this to other women because it was so powerful in my own life. And I found that it was happening in my teaching, in my teaching practice. I, I've lived and worked all over the world, Australia, the Netherlands and back in India. And so part of what I do now is to offer this practice to women. I accompany them in order to um, embody their spiritual body. I mean, what is the spiritual body? What is the spiritual self that is actually material? So it's not something conceptual. It's not something imaginative. It's actually how does it manifest in your feeling, in your sensations, in your body? Um, and how does it then transform your life? So this is what I support women to do in my work right now. 
That's so remarkable. Such an incredible offering. Now, Padma, how did you first step into this? I know you said it's been a part of your many lives throughout this life, but when did it first, you know, where, if you'd like to share a little bit about your origins, where did you sort of grow up? When did this come into your life? Because, because I always find it interesting, those who come into these sort of roles that are more spiritual based and goddess based often start somewhere that isn't related. Um, not always the case. Some people are brought up with it and it's surrounding them, but I'm just wondering for you, is this something that from an early age was a big part of your life? Um, Whitney, I was born and raised in India and I was born into a very traditional family. So I come from a family that has quite a long lineage. Um, we were uh, goddess worshippers. So the, the what they call the Kula, Kula Devata, Kula Devi of my family was actually Bhadra Kali, which is a very ferocious form of Kali. And we have a, a family temple, which I remember visiting when I was a young girl. And it was incredible to walk on the stone steps of the temple and to really feel like I was stepping in the footsteps of my ancestresses. So it's been a very much a part of my life. My family are very much into ceremony and ritual and philosophy. Uh, dance came into my life very early. Uh, my mother, in fact, had this deep yearning to dance, but because dance wasn't considered respectable, she wasn't allowed to dance. So I feel like the depth of that yearning somehow was in my DNA. And when she took me to dance, I wasn't even, it wasn't even a choice. I was very young and it just, dance just happened and it, it just kept happening. And I happened uh, to go to a teacher that, uh, my, my teacher's name is Guru Vempati Chinasatyam and he is a, um, well, he was a legendary teacher. He came from a family, again, a lineage. He was the 10th generation dancer of temple priests who were dedicated to this particular temple and they have been so for centuries. And in his body, the dance was something that was very ancient. It had a very ancient connection. And I think it's because I was very young and I didn't have any filter. So when I met him, I would have been about nine or 10 years old. I'd been learning dance before then. And there was something about the transmission that was, um, that was transformative in a way that it has taken me decades to actually unravel. I still feel like I'm unraveling that encounter. Um, with his practice, with his body and what dance was for him. And one of the things that he said to me was, you don't serve your, the dance doesn't serve you, but you serve the dance. And that absolutely stayed with me in many, many different ways all through my life. And what it has meant is that dance is the divine. It's not about the divine. It's not a representation of the divine, but the divine is actually a sensation and it is an embodied sensation. It's not a story and it's not outside of you. It is something within you that unravels when you are able to move into this embodied practice. And, and that I sensed very, very when I was very young. And I wasn't particularly interested in performance, although I had a really successful career as a performer in India. Um, and over, over the years of my life, I did, I worked as a professional dancer, professional choreographer. I had a dance company, which was very successful in Australia. And I worked in production houses in the Netherlands. But I think my, my quest was always about how is this dance spiritual? 
um, how does it actually, how is it divine? What is it about it that that is divine? Because I sensed very early on that it didn't have anything to do with the story. It's not because I am doing a dance about Shiva or I'm doing a dance about the goddess, but there's something deeper in the body itself, in the way in which it is um, opening up the body that is actually spiritual and that is archetypal. So that was my investigation about um, about how the, the body becomes a ritual body and whether it's a ritual body or an archetypal body, which means that we step out of the, the very um, simplistic ways in which we divide our body up into good and bad feelings and you know, the right and the wrongs. And we move into this multidimensional experience that you can actually have many different feelings and all of these feelings are actually connected. And that is like dropping into where you are experiencing not just feeling, but actually sensation. What is the sensation energy of ferocity? What is the sensation of beauty? What is the sensation of pleasure? And that is where you start connecting with the, the sensation in nature, the sensation of certain deities, which is multidimensional. And so that was where I, I found the divine experience, that, that the experience is, in the, particularly in the goddess tradition, is about beauty, it's about creativity, it's about energy and presence and passion. And, and so much of what we are taught about spirituality, about withdrawal and about the denial of body, just wasn't uh, the way that it happened in these ancient goddess traditions. And it's important because if we need to connect with earth, the first earth is our body. You know, our body is made of soil and that connection to earth doesn't happen if we don't connect to the body in that really multidimensional um, way of sensation and presence and passion. And so I found all of these different threads and where the disconnections have happened is I feel like it's the, the minute that we located the divine outside of the body, we disconnected with the divine, which is very intimate, you know, in our body, in the soil, in the earth, in the plants, in other living beings. So for me, it's been about reclaiming that intimacy of the divine. And how did you reclaim that? How did you personally, was there a... I mean, again, it sounds like you started dancing at a young age, but was there a certain time in your life where it became, did you ever feel disconnected from your body or did you always feel very connected and feel sense that source within you? Or was there a journey that you had where you had to have a greater connection with yourself because were you ever seeking source outside or did you ever have that in your life? And because I know that that it is something that a lot of us go through is the is seeking through means through the external, right? Believing that we don't have within us what we need, even though we do always. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was, uh, you know, because it came into my life so early, I think um, in my early years, I had instinctually that sense of the embodied divine. Absolutely, I did. Mm -hmm. So when I was dancing, I still remember the moments where there is this complete experience of communion, um, which happened. It's not that I, I'd realized what was going on. It was just the natural way of being. And because dance was such a big part of my life, I was, you know, I was traveling, I was dancing, 
Um, I mean, dance was just everything in my life from a very young age, and it seemed like the natural way of living. And I think the uh, the the self awareness about that began when I, I moved out of India, and, and you know that happened because I was um, in in an arranged marriage, which I really didn't want. And that was a kind of an exile suddenly from India and from the dancing itself. And I moved to Australia and then began this whole outward movement because I found myself in a place where um, I, it was not familiar. The culture wasn't familiar. My dance was something, became something exotic and something other. I was othered. And, and I, you know, all of this that had been so natural became something that I had to become conscious about. And I think in the West, there's a sense where all of this is professionalized. You know, dance becomes a profession, it becomes a work. And I found myself just, you know, I was only 21 when that happened. So I found myself really moving into that world where this is a profession, you know, I'm working in dance. There is a kind of self-consciousness about offering it and making work and, you know, putting up productions. And I think the magic still endured for a while. Um, and, and there was a moment where I, and I was running this very successful dance company and I felt completely empty. You know, everything was going successfully. Um, the company was growing. It was getting funded. We had an international profile. And I remember feeling totally empty. And I actually stopped. So I resigned from the company. I just didn't know what it was about. Um, but I resigned and I started this more, much more of a, an investigation into the form itself. So I studied uh, other dance forms. I did um, other modalities like Laban movement analysis. I did contemporary dance. I um, studied Bhutto. Uh, but my quest was, you know, what is it? What is it in my own practice? And I thought that if I have other practices, it helps me to reflect on my own practice, my own embodied practice. That was the investigation. What, what, what was I missing? Um, and, and that's when I, you know, it was during my work in the Netherlands where, again, you know, all through my life, it was this gift. People just came in. I wasn't really looking. People would come into my life. And so in the Netherlands, I had... The, the honor of working with two people who really made a difference. One was Peggy Hackney, who is one of the greatest um, gurus, I think an inspired teacher of Laban movement analysis. And, and the other person was Leo Sprexel, who was um, uh, uh, the artistic director of Corso Theater. So when I worked with these two people, they started opening up to me the sense that, I remember Peggy in the studio one day saying, you know, this dance is, is spiritual. You can't do this movement because it holds the spirituality in its very movement itself. So this is a transformative spiritual offering. And, and that was really a, a moment where things started to come together for me. And I thought, I think I know, I mean, when I say no, I say it with all humility because in the knowing is always is always in the present and it's always deepens because of course the divine is infinite. You can never say, I know the goddess. I mean, the goddess is infinite and she's always revealing in the moment. But even that, to know that the dance is a practice of revelation and, and how to hold and support the practice as revelation, because you know our mind is constantly wanting to know 
wanting to conquer, wanting to make something fixed. Um, and there is a purpose for that. I mean, the mind is, you know, is not evil. There is a purpose in our functional life. You know, we want to know how to drive a car and we want to, you know, so there is a kind of functional purpose for life. But I think what's happened is that we've conquered everything with the mind. You know, even the divine has been conquered by the mind and we want to fix the divine. We want to know and we want to conquer and we want to translate the divine into story. Even dance has been conquered by the mind and there is a beauty to it. Of course, there's beauty to choreo choreography and, you know, making dance pieces and offering it. So it's not to say that any of that is wrong, but I think that whole dimension, which is beyond the mind, where the body is actually pre-exists the mind. The body is not created by the mind. The earth isn't created by the mind. And there is a whole intelligence that the body has, which is greater than the mind. And in fact, the mind is only a part of that embodied consciousness. And it is, it is when we go into that, that greater, bigger intelligence and conscious, consciousness, which is primarily located in the body, that we begin to experience that sense of expansive presence, the sense which, what is the role of the mind in this expansiveness? And in fact, putting the mind in its rightful place, but also really embodying that expansiveness, that presence that is generous, that is passionate, that is also ferocious and sensual. And, and that is what, I began to really experience as the nature of this dance tradition that I have been gifted. I mean, my teacher used to say to me when I was very young, he said, look, he said, you know, you, you know, this dance isn't something that you own. Um, it, it's something that's come to you and you, you have a duty to just practice it, to actually serve it, to, to do it um, in the best way that you can with integrity and with, without any self-interest. And in dance, there is a word for it called yegna. And yegna is in the dance text, which is about 4,000 years old. Uh, it says that the first thing you have to have when you come into the practice is this yegna state of being. And it's a state of being of sacrifice and offering, which means you come with total openness, with, um, with a sense that my body, my consciousness, is an offering and whatever is needed will come to me, uh, will be given to me. And that is how I feel when I dance is, you know, just be simple and whatever is needed for you and for the world around you will come through you. And, and this, so this has been that unraveling and revelation that dance has been for me. And how did, were you able to sort of release the mind, because, you know, everything you're describing is about really kind of surrendering to being in the body, to working through the body without our mental interruptions, which can get in the way of a lot of things. You know, I mean, our, our mind is, is also a gift is a tool, just like the body is a, is a tool is a vessel. And then we, you know, the essence is the only thing that's real, you know, everything else is just something that we, we use to, for, you know, this creative expression of, of source of the divine. However, mm -hmm. our brains are kind of, you know, they're like a computer, so they can get a little tricky. They can try to over, as you've said, we've tried to figure out everything through our minds so far. 
and we've done mm-hmm. it, but it makes it overcomplicate th- things and it makes us um, sort of fixated on certain concepts and not be able to let go of a lot, right? When we're all in our minds, mm-hmm. we're too cerebral and that makes things more challenging for us. So, and especially with dance, I would say as a dancer myself, I've, I always struggled because I was way too in my head. I remember the first time I tried to do a double turn and I would fall every time because all I could think was, I can't do it. I can't, I'm going to fall, I'm going to fall. And I would watch these other dancers that could just effortlessly seem to just be able to do. And it was because they were, they were more in their bodies. They weren't so much in their head. And I, you know, I did gymnastics and other sports and I made the same mistakes with that too. So how do you, do you have any tips or ways that you have been able to sort of be more in the body, be more presence that you can just allow you know, and acknowledge that you are really just allowing something to come through you rather than having to force anything. That's such a great question, Whitney, because I think that's absolutely the fundamental conflict of our times, isn't it? It's not just an intimate conflict in our bodies, but I actually look at the world and I think that's the conflict in the world today as well. And, you know, people, many people have spoken about it. Many philosophers have spoken about it and they have, you know, they've been you know, some philosophers have called it the mechanization of reality, you know, the mechanistic way in which we see reality as uh, problem solving, cause and effect, um, that linearity that we've brought to reality. And, and you know, here we are in these times where we are, you know, in, in some trouble <laughs> with that way of thinking. And yet we are sort of, you know, there's a lot of us that are still continuing in that mechanistic way. We still feel like the answer is going to be in that brutality of, you know, um, let's oppose the earth and let's conquer the earth and let's conquer nature. And, um, and you know, there there was this ancient wisdom. I mean, we, we sometimes look back at the past and we think we're progressive and we're more civilized. I actually feel like, we, we really don't see how wise, how intelligent so many ancient traditions were. And not just in India, but, you know, there are ancient traditions all over the world which have very, very similar offerings of the intelligence of an embodied uh, way of, of inhabiting reality. And some things that, you know, simple things I, I use myself and I say to the women that I work with is one thing is that we're never going to, be out of the mind. That is an impossibility. To say that we're going to conquer the mind or, uh, you know, make the mind still or, you know, somehow, um, you know, bring the mind under control, I think that's a, de- that's a delusion. The mind, as you say, is extremely powerful. Um, you know, there is, it is also the goddess. So the goddess is the mind and the goddess is the body. It's not like the mind is opposed and the mind is extremely powerful. And the, this dance tradition absolutely knew the power of the mind. In fact, the tradition is only there because the mind is so powerful. And what the tradition proposes is that dance is a flow. It's a flow between the mental consciousness and the embodied consciousness. So it is not about getting out of the mind. Um, And in the dance, there is this beautiful practice of Shiva. So when we say Shiva and Shakti, this is what it is. Shiva is the mind that turns towards the goddess. Shiva is the mind that remembers the goddess, that recollects the goddess. And in that turning, that turning is the dance. So when we talk about Shiva's dance, it's the Shiva body. 
itself. It's a beautiful, beautiful practice. And, and it's the Shiva that sad remembers. So when, you know, when we speak of Shiva, we also speak about the most ancient forms of Shiva was Rudra, who was this, um, this force that was howling across the wilderness. So there is this, this anguish and this yearning, the poignancy, which we all hold. You know, somewhere deep in us, we all have this yearning. And what we do is we turn this yearning out. And we think the yearning is about the next job. It's about the next relationship. It's about something else, something else, something the next holiday. We're constantly throwing it out. And that Shiva moment is when you turn towards this yearning. And the yearning is the goddess. And there will always be the movement. So in the stories of Shiva, Shiva sometimes is wandering around wildly, howling, wandering around. And then there is this moment where in the dance, Shiva turns towards the goddess and then flows out again and flows back in. So there's this beautiful flowing out, the, the loss, you know, the coming together, the union, the lovemaking, but also the separation. And that is inevitable. And, and that is this flow that is very much part of this practice. And it is about how do we hold that flow? How do we embody that flow? And, and all of its different dimensions without denying anything, without denying the inevitability that we are going to be um, away. We're going to flow away. We're going to have these moments of poignancy, of yearning, the howling across the landscape. And we're also going to have the moment where we can turn and have that moment of union and the dance of that. So the dance is that flow. It's not one or the other. And, and this is the duality of the mind. You know, the mind can only be one or the other. Even verbal language is happens because of duality. You, you can't have a language without duality. Because when I say one word, it is only meaningful because it is not something else. So if I say white, it's meaningful because it's not black. Or if I say good, then it's, it's in relation to bad. Whereas in dance, you can be completely multidimensional and nonlinear. You can have ferocity and sensuality in the same moment. In fact, that is the goddess, that is Shiva. They're ferocious and sensual in the same moment. But if when you say the word, they're actually opposites. If I say the word ferocity, well, that is actually the opposite of sensuality. It is the opposite of being kind and compassionate. But in the body, you can actually sense how these flow, it's multidimensional flow. And this is the freedom we get from the stranglehold of the mind. You know, so the mind that separates and says, you know, the human the animal, the human, the tree, and we separate ourselves. And yet there is incredible intelligence in the most humble creature. I'm just looking at a bird in my garden outside that has been coming in as soon as I started talking to you with me. And, you know, she's having a bath in the bird bath. Oh, and it's, sweet. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's this communion. It's this incredible communion you have, the intelligence of nature. Um, and, and, you know, let me share another story with you. Two days ago, um, I was, it was nighttime and I was, I just felt I have to go and look outside in, in, my, in my garden. And then I look up and it was literally like I was called. And there was this Orion, the Orion constellation right above me. And I'm practicing Shiva at the moment. And Shiva is Orion. 
you know, in Shiva, the, in, in India, there's the connection between, in fact, Orion is the dancing Shiva in India. And so it was this incredible, like, you've got to come out now. And it was like this call. And this is the communion we get when we can dissolve the separation. It's not so remote. And this is how people lived. They could, it was intimate. The heavens were intimate. The stars were in the body. The body was the star. The animals, you know, we see the bird in us and us in the bird. And that incredible communion is what was, you're never lonely. You're never alone. And, and so this is, this is um, the gift of this practice. And so, so what I say to women is uh, leave mastery. You know, don't worry about mastery and competence, controlling something. So the dance itself is like a vessel. And, you know, you, you hold the dance like a vessel. So it's not about, I need to be perfect at this. I need to master this. You know, there is, a, there is a way of learning dance where if you want to be a performer, if you want to be on the stage, that's a different thing. Um, but this dance here is about coming into the form and learning how to hold the form without mastery, without thinking, I need to be competent, I need to practice this and practice this and get better at it, because it's about meeting it every time you come to it, encountering it just as you are. And maybe today it's going to be totally messy. Yesterday would have been better, but it doesn't matter because if you can just let those judgments go, every time there is a revelation, every time, because the goddess is alive and infinite. And she is not something that only happened yesterday, but she is happening all the time. So the, the, the important thing is to let go of competence and mastery. I think the philosopher Stephen Jenkinson speaks about our addiction to competence, you know, the competency addiction. Yes, it's useful for certain things, but I don't think spirituality is about mastery or competence. In fact, it's absolutely not about that. It's about letting go of those mental paradigms. Yeah, absolutely. Well, because when I think of mastery, I th I, that to me brings me more to an ego place where it's, well, I need to be the master of something. I need to have total and complete understanding and knowledge and competence in this thing. And to your point, you know, yes, it's great to have skills and knowledge and wisdom around things. Yet there are some things that are not, it's not possible to master because if you, you know, take a step back and that's the nature of life, the, le the experience of life is it's ever, it's infinite. So you're ever evolving. There's no mastering it because as soon as you get to one level, more opens up, right? It's always opening yeah. up to more. There's always more to learn. The universe and source and goddess is always, if you're infinite, you're always growing. You're never finished. So how yes. could you ever master that? So it's, you could say you could master this step or this part, but I think we're, to your point, the idea of addiction is when I have to do this or to me, that's what addiction is. It's, I, I need, it's conditional, right? I need to do this for this, but you know, everything you're talking about is doing for the sake of doing you dance mm -hmm. because you are, you want to dance. Your body is calling to be moved, to be expressed, right. For the mm -hmm. energy to come through, for the goddess to come through. And just because you're an incredible dancer doesn't mean you have to master it to be good, to be, to be worthy of dancing. It has nothing really to do with, with master. I mean, you can learn the art of flexibility and movement and all these different components. Yet again, there's no ultimate mastery of dance. Everyone can dance. Mm -hmm. Everyone has their own unique expression, which is so wonderful. 
Absolutely, Whitney. And I love the way in which you, you know, you connect that to life itself. You know, um, I love the way in which that that idea of relinquishing mastery competence, you know, the way you talk about life itself. Absolutely. I mean, we we delude ourselves. I think we're we're offered this mastery paradigm, which is, I think, the greatest cause of our anguish. It, we, you know, this this sense, this uh, this proposal that you can actually master life, you can actually have a template or a roadmap for your life, and we're constantly stumbling. You know, we we might for a little bit have this place where we think, oh yeah, okay, I got this, and then you know, as you said, you know, the next minute it's something else because, of course, again, as you said, it is infinite. Reality is infinite, and and the divine is infinite, and the divine is reality. So yes, it's infinitely unfolding. And it, But the other thing I want to say, the other side of it, which is important too, is that it's not that it's naive. You know, when you say there is no mastery and there is no competency, it doesn't mean it's it's just like anything goes either. Because I think there's been that other side of it, particularly um, in, in the way in which many of these traditions have been appropriated or you know, past the the colonization times, I think what's happened is they've been uh, taken out of their contexts and their lineages and their cultures. And there's been a sense of frivolity or naivety. You know, it's like anything goes because, you know, this is not a, um, you know, we can say it's not an intellectual tradition. The intellect doesn't matter. There's no mastery. So anybody can do it and anything goes. And and I've I, I think there is an intelligence. We, we think the intelligence is only about mastery and competence, but there is a completely different kind of intelligence, which is an embodied intelligence. And it is something. It has got, it's a way in which this is revealed, a way in which this is, is shared and transmitted. And that's what this practice is. I mean, this practice is such a sophisticated, you know, I'm, I'm using the word technology, not because I like the word, but because it's it is something like a a really deep, sophisticated intelligence about what is embodied intelligence, what is that embodied consciousness. Um, it's not random, and it's not um, imaginary, and you know, it's not something that is cooked up. The dance practice in the text, in in the way in which I saw my teacher embody it. It has an incredible intelligence, but it is not the intelligence that is visible when you approach it through the mind. And and that is the problem because we don't see it. So when you approach it through academic lens, for example, or when you approach it through, you know, language, verbal language, I struggle all the time to try and explain what it's about. And sometimes I just think, you know, sometimes we've got to say, look, everything that is worthy is not always um, conquered by word. Just because there isn't a word for something or a way of speaking about something in words, it doesn't mean that it's not worthy. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, that it's it, it's not there. And so many ancient traditions, including the tradition of the land that I live in, Australia, you know, 60,000 and more years of tradition here in this land, it, it wasn't about words. You know, they, it, those traditions are impossible to actually express in words. And so they become invisible. And this is, for me, part of my passion is about inviting women to not just be slave to the word. You know, not to think everything has to be information and word 
that there is an intelligence that is far more expansive than information and word and text. And that is the intelligence of the body and that there is a rigor to it. And there is a way in which this is unraveled. And there are traditions that knew, exactly knew how to do this. And, you know, amazingly, they were women-led traditions as well. Yeah. Yeah, the the importance of, you know, having things exist without words and without thoughts, I think is, you know, pivotal to really having a full experience. Because again, I think that we complicate things with words, with a fixation on thoughts or, or again, competency or mastery is that I think we actually move further from source and from, you know, the goddess energy, because that you almost, that's, almost what you find in the silence. I think that that's, I think of the value of meditation. It's because we move from this constant trying to figure things out and noise and all of that and move into a space of stillness and silence. And within that is where the truth usually resides, you know, where the purest form of expression is, is just in that stillness and silence. Yeah, absolutely, Whitney. I mean, I, I go a step further, you know, especially as I come from a dance uh, tradition, you know, I, I, I sometimes think even the silence and stillness, it's it like it proposes a duality in a certain way. It says, you know, there is movement and there's stillness and there is sound and there's silence. And the thing when you come into something like an artistic practice, which is the reason why in many ancient traditions, essentially the practices were artistic. So the, the spiritual inquiry was an artistic practice. And it's because um, the senses are really important. You know, when we say embody, it means our senses are important. So the, the, the beauty of seeing things, the, the sounds, you know, the bird song and the sounds and the movement. Um, in, in the goddess tradition, the essence of consciousness is pulsation. It's movement. And, and so movement is, is, you know, it's like the movement is both movement and stillness. So that's, that's where this, this whole blurring of that duality happens. And sometimes I feel like the, the, the traditions that are, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying they're not effective. Absolutely, they are powerful and they have a role to play. But especially for women, I feel that the sense of movement, passion, beauty, sensuality, I feel as a woman, I feel like that has been much more enlivening for me than the traditions that focus on stillness and and silence. Um, you know, I don't know. I just feel like for me, there's been a real uh, sense of, you know, because the woman's body is so much in movement. You know, we follow the lunar cycles in our body. We, you know, there is a kind of way in which our body is so connected to the rhythms and the movements in nature uh, that for me, I felt it was much more natural to be in a tradition that sees, that actually recognizes uh, the divine as something that is of the senses, that is of sensation, and that is of movement, and that is of embracing all that is beautiful sounds, um, seeing things, you know, the, the beautiful touch, the sensuality of touch and the beauty of movement. So that's, you know, this is just offering a, a more of an expansive view. I'm not saying the other traditions aren't effective, absolutely not. 
Um, but I'm also saying that, you know, here is something that can offer you perhaps a different and a, and a more expansive view on uh, the embodying of the divine. Yeah. And um, when you speak of the embodying of the divine, you know, you said earlier, you were kind of talking about how when you saw the bird in your backyard and you saw Orion and you think of Shiva, we we do often, I think that one of the greatest challenges that we also face in, addi- in addition to, you know, the obsession with competency or mastery or achievement, all these externals, is also the greatest disservice is that we believe that that which is of source or of ancient tradition or significance is either a long time ago or disconnected from us. It's something outside. It's something that we're not connected with. I think that a lot of people really believe that or feel that way, that, you know, whatever might have been the creator or origin of what we have now is long gone, (laughs) that it's not with us. My understanding is that not only is it still with us, but it is us. There's no separation. Like you said, duality is just an experience while we're here on earth that allows us to have this unique earth experience, but it's not reality that anything is separate. Everything is all one in the same sense. We are of the source of the origin of the goddess. So all of these things that allow us to see that when we are in dance or in movement and experiencing, maybe feeling like we're channeling or bringing through the essence of the goddess, it's because it's always with us all the time. Absolutely, Whitney. I mean, beautiful, beautifully put that yes, because we locate all this in time. And when we say mythology, you know, we immediately locate it in time and we say, oh, you know, that's something of the past. And not only that, we've actually looked at mythology almost as ways, you know, it's almost like historical things. You know, we try and then think of them as ways in which it's saying something about how people lived in those times or what they were doing in those times. Uh, and I've often wondered, you know, what what if we look at all these things as it, like the cave paintings, the dance itself, it's really got nothing to do with people recording their life, but these were practices of invocation. Um, they were not meant to record how people were living because recording wasn't important. If you look at this embodied tradition, it's the now that's important. And if for, for people who really embodied this practice, who centralized this practice, recording isn't important for them. Because, you know, the the, uh, the idea of looking at something from yesterday and taking a lot of effort to, you know, record it and, and, and save it wasn't the purpose of life. It was about invoking. So everything they did was invoking the divine in the moment. So it was with the paintings that they did, with the dance that they did. And when you look at it in that way, which is how I look at it, it, it completely opens up a totally different um way of relating to reality, of inhabiting reality. Because, you know, again, we're using language and and that language is so difficult because it always separates us. You know, we're not just in a relationship to reality. We are reality. You know, we we kind of manifest reality and we are reality. And and so there is an immediacy and an intimacy. And this has been one of the really important things that, you know, that drive me in this work, a kind of passion that drives me in this work is to make the divine intimate, not intimate in a, in a way of a fantasy. You know, sometimes you can, and I have seen offerings where, 
you know, there are the goddesses and and people have, you know, these stories about goddesses and then you're enacting the story of a goddess or you're imagining the goddess. But in fact, in, in this tradition, you actually move away from all that story. You, you know, you that, this is the yajna, is you leave stories, you leave language, you leave stories, including the story of yourself, everything. You leave everything and you really come into that space of sensation and you 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 move into a, like a ritual body, and for want of a better word, it's like this multi-dimensional um, body and state of being, and you are really stepping into the unknown, and in many ways the unknowable because you can't always try and translate it into words. In fact, many of the women I practice with, you know, they tell me. I don't know how to speak about this to my friends. It's very difficult for me to explain to my friends what is what is being revealed to me in this practice. And again, that is that is that that is when you know that you haven't just manifested a fantasy, uh, because here the mind is very very powerful. All the time, the mind is taking control of the story because that's what the mind does. It's, it, it wants to keep being in control. That's the purpose of the mind is to control, to bring it into a story, to bring it into the known, to give you a roadmap. And the practice is always inviting you to step out of the roadmap. And yes, it's scary, but the practice knows that. And that's why it's an artistic expression, because there is also play, there is also pleasure, there is also joy. It's not this scary practice of the depths. And I feel like in some of the, you know, the, these traditions, again, in, in the West, you know, for, for, for example, the work of Carl Jung, I really love his work. He's been one of the, uh, you know, people that really have, has inspired me in my own work. But I find that, you know, the, the, the way in which it's called the unconscious and it's called the depths, it's sometimes called the shadow or the, or the darkness, it can make it something that is only scary and only um, terrifying. Whereas the practice, this, this tradition that I do, it, it actually recognizes, yes, it's scary, but that's why there is this whole ritual body coming into it as in a playful way, in a exploratory way, in a way of discovery, it's an artistic practice. And, and so this is how we move into that space where something is really alive and it is coming through. We are not just manifesting a story we already know. Um, you know, the goddess stories are just to get us to the doorway because we need the mind to come along. But beyond the doorway, it's really this open infinite, the space of infinite possibilities. And that is the true, I mean, how can it be a revelation if you already know what's going to be revealed? You know, if you already know the goddess, and then you're just coming to kind of manifest the goddess you know, that's not a revelation. So a revelation, and the revelation is so intimate. Let me give you um, an example, you know, because the revelation when I work with women always happens with guidance. So there's this woman I was working with who was invoking the goddess Dhumavati. And as part of the practice, it, what came to me intuitively was this practice of uh, Makara, which is um, quite an intense practice. It's about parting and death. And, and I was a bit, you know, I thought, oh, should I be really doing this practice? Uh, the, and the symbol of the Makara is the crocodile. And the first thing she 
turns up at the practice and the first thing she says is, I had a dream last night about a crocodile and I never dream about crocodiles. I mean, this is the intimacy of the guidance and the practice. And so I, that affirmed to me, okay, we, you know, that's what she needs. That's where her revelation is going to be. And it was an incredibly powerful practice for what was going on in her life. That was exactly what, what she needed. So sometimes and, you know, another woman said to me, you know, she felt like the practice is not what she wants, but what she needs. And sometimes we don't even know what we need until we come into this practice and, and things are revealed to us. So yes, that intimacy of the divine is a really important thing. And I feel like some, some of our brutality today in the world is because we have lost that intimacy, that intimate truth of the divine. You know, we think the divine is remote from us. We think the divine is, you know, somewhere in the past, somewhere in the heavens, far away, just like we think, you know, all these constellations and all the science is great, but it's like, you know, all these millions of light years away, it's like, it's not really connected to us. And even the earth is not connected to us, you know, because it's like some something that we live in and we use for our purposes. And, you know, there's no connection between us and the earth. And yet we are the earth consciousness. And, and we that intimacy of how the bird is in us, how that flutter of the bird, the bathing of the bird moves in us and how we move in that bird, that's the intimacy. And I feel like it's the loss of that intimacy that makes us so brutal in many ways, in the way in which we are in the world, brutal towards each other, brutal towards nature, um, you know, so I, I, that's where I feel these practices are so urgent. You know, they are the practices that we most marginalize, the you know, practices of dance, the arts. You can see that all over the world in the recent times, arts became non-essential. And I just think, wow, we've made something that is about beauty, about creativity, completely non-essential. And to me, those are the practices that go towards our humanity. Like what makes us human is that does that artistic expression and creativity and passion that makes us human. Yeah, yeah. And we we just don't seem to recognize that to be true. We don't really seem to connect with that concept. And it's, again, it does us a great disservice. And I think it keeps us in this limited place, limiting beliefs about ourselves, about our place here, about what we really are here. I mean, we are magnificent beings. <laughs> we are, you know, we're incredible. We have the life force within us and, but we discredit ourselves. We don't see it that way. As you said, we feel disconnected. We feel apart from and not a part of, you know, both the cosmos and nature and the earth beneath us. We don't feel the connection to it. And that's lonely because that's what we are. You know, we are the cosmos. We're the same thing as the cosmos and the earth. And we, when you don't believe that, then you can feel, you know, so separate, so alone. And separation is a, um, a hard feeling because we're, by, by nature, we're not separate. We're all connected. Absolutely. Absolutely, Whitney. And, and, and that connection cannot be a thought. Um, it, it has to be, it, it has to be a lived, it has to be like a visceral experience in the body. And, and it, you know, the women I work with, they always, they always say to me that they know something is truth because it's coming, it's come to them from their body. 
you know, it's, it's, it's the revelation of something of their life that comes to them from their body. You know, you know to give you another example, I was working with this, this woman who is a visual artist and what came to her was this practice about deception, which is, you know, a great, there's a big, very important aspect of the goddess practice that is about deception. The nature of reality is, is deception. And that's why we can't be naive when we engage with nature. We can't be patronizing and we can't just say that, you know, we're going to control nature because what you see is not what it is. Nature is incredibly deceptive in its, its multidimensionality. And so this practice came to her. And as she was doing it, she said, I can smell tobacco. I mean, we, we do all this Zoom online. You know, she's in a completely different part of Australia to me. And she said, I can smell tobacco. I can smell tobacco. And these things happen. These sensory experiences can happen in the practice. And then she's reflected later and she said, you know what? She said that was about her grandfather. Her grandfather was a gambler. And, and this deception, so she, her, she was very close to her grandfather, and she had this whole thing around this, you know, the idea of gambling and deception and uh, all of that in her own life. You know, she had this whole, um, this complexity about this whole domain of deception in her own life. And she realized in that moment that it was connected to her story with her grandfather because this tobacco is what her grandfather used to smoke all the time. And this incredible, you know, it was totally nothing that she could have ever imagined or thought about. And this totally was revealed to her as the truth and this visceral experience of truth. It happens all the time. And so truth is not an abstract philosophy. It's not all the libraries of texts that we have, because really, if we if all of that was effective, um, Whitney, we wouldn't be where we are today. No, we wouldn't be so remote from the truth of the divine. And in these traditions, these women-led traditions that women, you know, very simply and generously held it. So these women held it for other women. There was no hierarchy. These women were not gurus. When I practice with women, I'm not the guru. I'm not the teacher. I'm simply accompanying them because we are, our, our bodies are, we are our own teachers. Uh, our, the teachings are in us. What the teachings we need are in us, and that's that's the greatest source of our own teachings. We don't need to sit at anybody's feet, and and that was how these women held these teachings. And they always say that nobody needs to tell them that this is true because it's come from their own bodies. Like for this woman, mm -hmm. you know, that the truth of this whole teaching about deception. She didn't. She didn't. If she read it in a book, it would have made no sense to her. But it, emerging from her body, she just, you know, nobody needs to tell her what's true for her. And it's true at an intimate level, and it's true at the universal level at the same moment. And this is the power of that embodied intelligence, is that non-duality, you know, what is intimate is also universal. There is no, it's not an opposition. And, and I, I feel that's why these traditions are so important, because we we need to feel that the truth is intimate it's not somebody telling us what is true or some text in you know somebody in ancient times saying you know here's this here's all the truth and then you know we are just you know it's all there as this text and we just it has to come from our body and it has to be true to what is our life experience you know what is it that's going on in our life around us 
And what is the divine truth for us in that moment? And I just feel that's what's going to rehumanize us. You know, these very humble traditions, which we totally reject and we say it's not important. You know, we, we say it's non-essential, but that's where I feel like our hope lies. The hope for us to live in more harmony, to live more connected, to be more human. I feel that's where the hope lies. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love what you're saying about, you know, to me, it's kind of the idea of sovereignty, our sovereign truth, our sovereign ability to know that, you know, we don't have to seek outside of ourselves. Our greatest truth is within, that we have that. We have that ancient wisdom within us. It's mm-hmm. not all to be learned or to be found outside of us. We can seek guidance and wisdom from others. That's always valuable. But to know that, you know, it's inherent to us, it's accessible through us is powerful. And I think the more that we begin to practice that, the less we feel dependent on things outside of us and, and you know, things other than ourselves to show us what is true, you know, because that also, that becomes dangerous. And it has been dangerous for us to believe that only other people know what's right for us and what's true. Absolutely, Whitney. And, and you know, the, the word dangerous you use, I mean, it has been dangerous, particularly for women. Yeah. to outsource that. I mean, women have, uh, you know, have outsourced so much of their their strength, you know, what is called Shakti, you know, it's been outsourced. And, and in fact, in this tradition, Shakti is a very embodied experience. So Shakti is not a story. It is, an, it's how do you feel that strength in an embodied way in your own body? So the practices of Shakti, like the mountain, you know, the, how, the groundedness of the mountain, when you embody that in your body, it's like um, you, the mountain pulls the earth up as it rises. It doesn't float above the earth. In fact, it, it is pulling the soil up. And so it is with, with our body. You know, we, we are off earth. We're not just walking on top of earth. We, like the tree, we are actually made of the soil and we are pulling that earth up into our bodies. And that is our strength. And so these embodied practices of strength, and it's so important for women because we have out, we've outsourced so much of our strength, not just in spiritual ways, but in every way. We've, we've been, you know, we have to be given permission to, to be powerful, to be equal. You know, we're always looking outside, you know, permit me to be equal, permit me to, to you know, manifest who I am, permit me to be sensual, permit me to, you know, constantly this, you know, this asking for permission. And I, and I feel that this outsourcing is, is very powerfully dangerous for women in particular, and I also, you know, talking about outsourcing is this, this, you know, this, as you say, you know, everybody else knows what is right for us. Is this, um, there is this German philosopher, I, I can't, uh, you must forgive me, I can't remember his first name, but his surname is Han. Uh, actually, the book is here. Yeah, Byung, Byung Chul Han is his name. I do want to respectfully say his name. And he's a German philosopher and he speaks about um, this information. He speaks about how we are so... Um, this, you know, this information addiction that we have, where we are, we're cons- everything has now become information. Nothing is body anymore. It's all information. It's all information. And then, you know, the more we look onto the, you know, the digital platforms and everything, we're living in this reality, which is information. And we're completely disconnected from 
what is the reality of body? You know, how we, and here we are, life actually unfolds in our body. It unfolds in the soil, the earth around us, but we are living in this universe of information and more information and more information. And spirituality has become that too. I mean, it's it's sometimes, you know, when I'm working with women, they'll say to me, where can I find information about this? And I say, in your body, <laughs> through the practice, it's mm. going to be revealed to you. You don't need to go out and buy the next book, you know, buy the next thing and yeah. the next philosophy. It is, it will be revealed to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love that. So I have to remind myself that sometimes because it can be this tendency of, okay, I need to solve this. So I need to go research this and look it up. But again, it's sometimes it's just about coming back to yourself, just spending some time with yourself, you know, and tapping into your own inner knowing. The answers are, are all, they're usually, they're inside. Even when we learn something outside of ourselves, it's only, to me, it's only really because it elicits something that was always within us. It's just something that we didn't, we thought we couldn't do ourselves, but anything that we feel something external is creating within us, it was always there in the first place. We, our belief just changed about it, right? You know, Absolutely. When, if, if we ga- gain success in a job or find a, a mate that we're happy about, nothing changes. We think, oh, now I'm happy because I had this, but it just allows access to something that you maybe were closed off to or weren't in touch with. So it's just interesting to think that as much as we want, and again, things can be tools, they can sort of create this belief that allows these an access to this information. The information's always there. So if we can find that belief that we are the greatest source of our own truth, we can really kind of be able to tap into that and, and find our own wisdom and our own understanding. And maybe even, and that's where innovation happens, right? I mean, that's where new ways of doing things come from is not by gaining someone else's guidance, but saying, well, what do I think about this? What do I feel? What do I feel about this? Because what you feel is your own unique essence that's wanting to come through, right? That the goddess is the dancer, but you're sort of the expression. You So then you get to see how the, the goddess comes through you, but it can only come through each of us in its own unique way. So when we don't allow for that, the world is missing out on our, our unique expression, vision, thoughts, you know, viewpoints. Yeah, Whitney, you touch on something really important about, um, you know, that that sense of innovation and, and that originality. Um, one of my favorite philosophers is uh, Jay Krishnamurti. And he's many, many years ago, um, he, he's no longer alive, but I think it was in the 70s and he he was speaking at that time about how we've all become secondhand people because he said we're constantly outsourcing I mean I'm using the word outsourcing uh, you know we're constantly uh, just literally living somebody else's knowledge somebody else's mm-hmm. expertise um, and you know re- repeating so even when there is a certain technique you know we get this technique and then we just keep repeating this technique and we master this technique and and so he you know he said he said ultimately we are in the end we are there's nothing original we are about we are secondhand people essentially, and that was a very powerful thing for me when I heard it. it. Was I was quite young when I first heard it, and and that sense of what you exactly what you said about holding that space where you can, um, you know, be empty. And he, another thing he said is coming empty of the known, and that's that's a beautiful way. I found that such a beautiful way of coming into something empty of the known. And that's where you hold the space 
for things to be revealed. Because if you are constantly going to hold on to the known, again, there's no revelation. You can manifest a roadmap. And yes, of course, there are times in our life when roadmaps are important, you know, absolutely. But a spiritual practice of revelation is not about manifesting a roadmap. It is about coming empty of that known and being able to hold that space where the divine can reveal uh, herself through you. And sure, it's going to be infinite. It's not going to be, and I say that to women when I'm dancing, I say, you know, the, the purpose of this is not to dance like me. It is to actually taste, you know, how do you encounter this dance as it's coming through me, but how do you encounter it in your body, in your consciousness? What is that encounter like? And that's even when I'm practicing with women, I'm holding the space for them. I'm kind of being a mirror. And one of the, the best things, I mean, the, the things that I feel most moved was when a woman recently told me that she felt what I did was hold a mirror for her to unfold herself. And she, she, she said, holding a mirror without any contamination. And I thought that is really what I want to do. That's what I'm here to do. And that's what it is. It's, it's about how you can also be a mirror for the divine to unfold, to unfold in you, just as everything around you is a mirror as well. You know, just like you said, because we, you know, when we encounter things in life, it is mirroring that unfolding within us. And when we are aware of that, I mean, you know, sometimes I find that when I'm, because I'm writing at the moment, I'm I'm trying to write about this practice, which is quite a challenging thing to do. But I'm feeling like it's you know I should try and do that, and I find that uh, you know I'm led because it's going from the inner to the outer rather than the usual ways of research, which is you know looking at a whole body of work and synthesizing it, which is fine. You know, there's a purpose for that kind of research, but in this, I've really had to let that go, and it's taken me a while. To, to understand that's not the way it's going to work here. And I have to be guided from within. So there will be something which will say, okay, go and look in that source and I'll go there and there'll be something that will help me kind of put words to what I'm saying or something that kind of underpins it. So it's totally nonlinear. It's, you know, it's very chaotic. There's no way I can set a roadmap. And I've had to come to, I'm still learning to, in my writing process, to go with that. I mean, in the dancing, I'm well able to do that. But in the writing, I'm trying to apply that same way of being open, you know, being open in our life to non-linearity and to just, that, that's what allows for infinite possibilities, as you said. You know, we're, we're not all going to be clones of each other because the goddess is infinite. How can it be that there's only one way of being her and, you know, every one of us is going to be like that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, again, another sort of travesty of our time is that if you kind of look at it, we all just kind of want to be like everybody else. We, we're very mm -hmm. stuck on, you know, imitating others and saying, oh my gosh, look at what they have. I want what they have rather than saying, yeah. ooh, what can I be? Because just as you described that, that ultimate compliment, which is watching you maybe think of what I can be rather than, okay, I want to be just like you and dance just like you and look just like you rather thinking, wow, well, if you can have that, what can I have? So like your own unique expression. And I, you know, I don't think we do that very often because we, we don't know, it feels challenging to tap into. And a lot of us just don't think we have it. You know, we definitely suffer with a, you know, an epidemic of insecurity and low self-worth and self-esteem as people. 
And, you know, I think that people don't think that they have anything special. So they just try to imitate because they think, well, what can my, what can my, you know, specialty be? What can I do with what I have? But the reality is that so much, right? I mean, everybody has, they're such a unique and magnificent gift and presence here. Absolutely, Whitney. I mean, um, you know, the epidemic of of low self-worth, yeah, that's a powerful uh, way of of uh, perceiving it, isn't it? And um, you know, it's it's that sense also that we we have about what is community, and you know, we think community is about signing up to everybody believing in the same things. Uh, and it's it's interesting that many of these ancient goddesses were lone figures. You know, they were. There were these goddesses. They were not with consorts. You know, they were they were consorts who were called the doorway deities, but they were not like this pairing. Like I said, you know, the Shiva and the goddess. There was this flow. You know, it wasn't about this couple, and and the and the goddess herself was always on the outskirts of the village. She was outside the village. She was in the forest. She was in a cemetery, but she was always outside the village, and and that is this powerful thing that. You know, this is not about signing up to something that is, you know, going to kind of, you know, here's a group of people and we all believe in the same thing. Um, this is about exactly like you said, is what is um, what is my deepest self? Um, what is what is my most intimate self? Because it is at that in a strange way, it is at that level that we find universality. Because, you know, whenever you sign up to, I mean, there may be purposes for certain communities, you know, they, they are instrumental and they serve certain purposes, but it's never, it's never the whole of you. Um, you know, you sign up to certain things and then you'll find that there are a whole other parts of you which are really not at all in tune with what is going on there. So you're either you're constantly being less than what you can be just because you want to belong um, or you're constantly feeling this this sense of you know um, being a misfit, and and these goddesses actually celebrated that sense of the misfit. You know, it's like when, you know when you say you're the misfit, that's where the the revelation starts, and and the sense of communion is the communion that is not just about a tribal communion. This is a communion, firstly with yourself, then you know because that is the divine when you really come into that communion with yourself, that is divine, that is the goddess. And then you're connected to everything else. And and I don't mean this in a fantasy way. It's actually, like I said, that, you know, that connection with the Orion, with the bird, it's a visceral thing. One of the women I, I practice with, she calls it an atmospheric change. You know, she says when she's out in nature and she can come into that connection, she says it's like this localized atmospheric change. You know, the quality of light changes. Something visceral and material happens that we can use the word magical for it. But it is that assurance that, yes, this is happening to you. And yes, this is the divine is a material experience. It's not a conceptual experience. It's not a remote experience. It's not an experience that you have to live for a thousand births. It is possible in the here and now, in the most humble and simple of ways. And you know that coming into the fullness of yourself is where you are never alone. You're never alone. And for me, that is the basis of community. You know, it's a basis of a community that can support 
people to be their full self and not to say, you can only sign up if you believe in these little things. You know, you got to kind of believe in this. But can we all come together because we believe in the fullness of our unfolding? I mean, that for me would be the, the, commu- the universal community. Yes. Oh gosh. I want to live in that community. That's the community. I'm Me looking too. For. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think so many of us do. I think more and more we're feeling this, this draw, this, you know, calling to a community like that, where we can have full self-expression and not have to adhere to anything specific. I think that's another thing that we struggle so much with is a fear of speaking our truth, of speaking how we really feel, because will I be accepted? Will I be allowed? And so we kind of keep ourselves in these boxes. And like we said, are, you know, pre-created by someone else's idea. And so we say, well, I don't know where else to go. So I'm going to fall in line with their ideas because where else, what else will I do? But yeah. And then it, it feels that can feel like life is a little bit not very welcoming that it, it's it's conditional everything feels mm-hmm. so conditional so often you know well they only like me because i align with this but you know to me whenever i feel most connected with source or spirit it's it's this unconditionality it's just this this wonderful presence that is that accepts all that there's nothing that is outside of its embrace right Absolutely. and all is welcome and all is encouraged and it's just pure love and you know that i think more and more of us are, are yearning for yet are feel so separated from with the way things are now. Yeah, Whitney, I love the word unconditional. In fact, that's what I, I, I say in my work is, you know, this is about unconditional freedom. And, and that unconditionality is, is what makes it, that is the divine. You know, when we say unconditional, that is the divine. And that unconditionality is a sensation within us. It's, it, it's unconditional because it's not conditional upon somebody giving it to you, someone giving you permission. It's not outside of you. It's in fact, we have to allow ourselves that unconditionality. You know, we, we are the ones that stand in the way of our own unconditionality. And when we allow that, uncondi- so it's that unconditional pleasure. Can we can we have a sensuality, particularly as women? You know, it's interesting when I was listening to your podcast about with Ramona Whitney. Ramona talked a lot about anger, and absolutely, you know, isn't anger a major problem for women? You know, you know, it's such such a lot of judgment about anger. Mm-hmm. In my work with women, I find that sensuality is an even more problematic area than anger for women. So, you know, women's sensuality has been made so instrumental, so much in service. There's been so much morality and you know it doesn't matter which culture you're from I've worked with women from all different cultures and just about everybody comes with this this kind of uh, weight around sensuality and what is it to be unconditional in your sensuality as a woman uh, because sensuality is is primary it is it is about the beauty of nature it's about the pleasure of our us nature it's that underpinning sensation upon which we can explore other things we can explore the difficult things like ferocity like death like um, you know like rage when it is underpinned in sensuality and when we deny sensuality it's like this huge aspect of reality um, of sensation of reality that we we have lost access to. So what is that unconditional sensuality, which is not in service of anybody, but which is there in our body? You know, it's there because we can see things, we can taste things, we hear things, we have, you know, this beauty of our own skin, um, you know, the beauty of our own body. And it's not 
the body that is like some something that is only you know it's only beautiful if your body looks like this or it's only essential if it is in service in a relationship or it's only sensual it's you know all these ifs we have that conditionality we have around sensuality and and i have worked with women when they have allowed themselves to be open to that unconditional sensuality and it's so powerful because suddenly women find it connects them to their ferocity how is sensuality linked to ferocity not in our mind but in our body in that at that sensation level in our consciousness embodied level they are linked they absolutely there is a flow and i remember one woman who you know when she encountered sensuality in the practice first she went oh no i can't go there and we never pushed through and that is the whole the way that the whole practice has such an intelligence about all of those fears so it's it's like the spiraling and then you know it moves away and i'm completely guided so we move away and somehow somewhere it returns and sometimes we don't even know it's about sensuality so there was this moment where it spiraled and deepened and it returned and she went into it and she just said i now know what is the goddess i i can really taste this goddess you know i can taste i can feel it and from there she suddenly found this strength and ferocity to make a what was a difficult decision about one of her sons you know she said to me she said she said i, I was lying on the sofa and suddenly i was catapulted out of the sofa and i went in and i looked at the computer found a different accommodation and it was all done she said i've been thinking about this for years and in one moment you know something that connection so we don't know how these connections are because they're not linear and so that unconditionality is not just something nice to have it's actually essential for us to to actually experience the divine and that unconditionality we have to give ourselves permission nobody else needs to give us permission because it is already available in us yeah i think that's the greatest challenge is to give ourselves permission but also that unconditional acceptance and love that mm-hmm. we're we're our own greatest barrier towards that not anyone else it's it's us we're the ones that need to to do that first for ourselves um and padma i um you know you, we talked about the importance of of rage and anger and then you know in sensuality and all these things that are you know kind of uh you know can be tricky areas and love to hear a little bit I'd, I'd hate to let you go without getting a little bit of your your wisdom and insight into the goddess the indian goddesses right because they stand for such powerful concepts and i'd love for you to offer a little bit about shiva and kali ma because to me those i i, I still have a hard time wrapping my head around because they they're both about destruction but it it's or somewhat destruction but also destruction for breakthrough it's almost like transformation right so i'd love mm-hmm. to hear your you share about about them specifically and what they sort of represent and how there can be something that might be destructive but also be loving and gentle and offering you know a pathway forward yeah um witney so shiva is um is the is the deity of the times we live in um in indian astrology this is the time of shiva very very powerfully the time of shiva and as it always happens you know um i, I shiva has emerged as the deity that i'm doing in my group courses and also in a couple of my individual uh programs with women uh, it happens that shiva is being invoked and that 
that's always how it works. You know, when when a deity comes forth as the focus deity, or when people suddenly start coming to me with, oh, you know, I want to uh, practice this deity, it usually is connected with the energies of the times. I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's such a material connection um, that that happens. The the way we are connected to the larger energies and the macrocosm. So in in this time of Shiva, it is the time of churning, and uh, there is a there is a story in Indian uh, mythology which really goes to the energy of the times and which goes to Shiva as well. So in, in ancients, the gods and the not-so-gods, they call them demons, but I don't like to call them demons because they're just in the spectrum. They were, they're more likely humans, really. And so let's say that the gods and the humans decided to churn this big cosmic ocean of consciousness um, in order to find what is called the nectar of immortality. Now, immortality is, is really freedom from time, which is freedom from the mind. So when we speak of immortality today, we think it's living forever. But actually, in philosophy, it is just freedom from, t- from time, which means coming into presence, being alive in the moment. So they were, they were going to churn this ocean. So they got this big mountain, Um, as the churning stick in the middle of the ocean. And they had a serpent, which represents non-linearity because the serpents live underground and on the earth. And they tied the serpent to the, uh, the, like the the mountain had a waist around the mountain and they started churning. So the gods and the demons started, um, or the the humans started churning this great ocean. And out of the ocean, you know, this huge churning turbulence lots of things emerged. There were goddesses that emerged, like Lakshmi, who represents um, work, family, organized society, you know, the the world of the reality that we live in, the the more mind-constructed reality. There was Alakshmi that represents disease, unease. Um, There was Kubera, who is about money, influence, and power. And there was Kamadenu, which is the wish-fulfilling cow, the cow that gives you whatever you wish for. And, and, you know, there were people that would run away, you know, somebody, some people would run after Lakshmi, others would run after Lakshmi. So, but the, you know, those who persisted kept churning, those who were really focused on getting this, um, this uh, going to this immortality, this freedom from time and the mind. And this is kind of the times that we are in now. There is this huge churning going on. And there's all of these things that are coming out. And there are people that will go, you know, be, Behind Lakshmi, there'll be people who go behind Kubera, you know, money, power, influence, and think that's going to be the the answer. You know, there's Alakshmi with the disease and Anis, but they're all coming out of this very same ocean of consciousness. And the that divinity, which is that coming into that eternal presence, is also in that same ocean. And it won't come out. We have to kind of be with this churning, with the discomfort, with everything. And we have to make sure that we keep our eyes on the prize. Because otherwise we'll think Lakshmi is the answer. Because she's a goddess. And even disease, a Lakshmi, is a goddess. You know, so we'll get distracted. And we'll, you know, we'll run behind one thing or we'll run behind something else or we'll run behind Kubera. But it's just, what is this that we, what is it that we seek? And if it is, we seek that that coming into presence, that being able, like you say, that unconditional presence, that being alive, vital, present, being bringing our energy and vitality, that's what we need in, to live in reality. We don't need a story. We need our energy and we need that presence. And the other day in class, one of the women asked me, what do you do 
about apathy because when times are so turbulent, you know, you, you get apathetic because you feel powerless. That's why this is about focus on energy. Focus on the fact that you want that shakti. What you need most is not an answer or some running behind something, but you just want to have that energy and presence. And so this is the time, the dance of Shiva is this churning. And the dance of Shiva, the churning and the presence, that churning that remembers that presence, and that is Kali, that, that unknown, unknowable presence. And Kali is scary for us because she's dark and she's not knowable. And so we get scared of her. And what the Kali's ferocity is our own fears. And she mirrors it. She says, I know your fears. I know you don't like the unknown. I know you're terrified of the unknown, of death. Well, death is the big unknown. So death, dying, decay, you know, the body's decay, the body's disintegration, you know, our fear of blood, all of this is Kali. You know, she's that unknown, unknowable, that unconditional presence, which is always unknown and unknowable, which can appear very terrifying. But we can't deny all that. So none of this is sugar-coated, but it's also at the same time, it's not, oh my God, it's all terrifying and it's terrible and it's dark and it's, you know, all of suffering. It's neither. And, you know, there's beauty in Kali. She's, she's beautiful as well, but she's also not beautiful in the ways that we think of beauty. You know, we have to go beyond our story about beauty in order to see that uh, you know, that unconditional beauty of Kali, which invites us to that same unconditionality. Can we be unconditional about our, our body, ourself, about the unknown? So this is that Shiva, in, you know, they're actually inseparable because Shiva's dance holds the knowing of the goddess, the taste of the goddess, the movement of the goddess. And in a certain way, Kali only happens when you are in the Shiva body. You know, that dancing Shiva body is the body that upholds Kali as well. So, yeah, you know, in, in some way there is this absolute enmeshed fluidity. That's why they, they unite in lovemaking, the, you know, that beautiful union of Shiva and, and Shakti. Wow. Thank you so much, Padma, for that. What a brilliant description and, you know, just visualization of, those concepts, you know, of those, of that ancient tradition and, and what it just rings so true, you know, the, the things that seems the darkest and scariest to us are the things that are often most important for us to look at and to face and to embrace unconditionally, right? To see that there, you can't separate the two. You can't say, okay, I'm, I'm going to, this stuff is good and safe and I like this, but I don't like that, you know? And so I think it's wonderful that there's representation and, you know, I think that's a bit unique to the Indian tradition, the Indian goddesses, because in other ways, there's only this idea of, of saints or gods being like this brilliant per perfection and anything else is sort of their opposite. But that's never the case. Yeah, it's like reality itself, that yeah. we can put a moral lens on reality. And yes, that's a good way of organizing ourselves as a society or in life, but it's reality is far more expansive than that. And, uh, you know, it's not again, you know, so then people will, and that's what's happened, you know, suddenly people will say, oh, that's about being immoral and self-indulgent. And no, it's about being neither. It's about being in that sensation experience of reality, like the sensation of a storm, the sensation of even the floods that 
we are having in in Australia at this moment that I'm speaking to you. You know, there's there's large parts of the country that are suffering under floods. And yet there is this power, this surging of waters, there's this movement, energy and surging. Is that That's neither good nor bad. It's not to say you ignore the suffering, just like the churning. Uh, yes, it's the suffering is part of it, but it is about how we bring that energy into not denying anything, not opposing anything, not resisting, nor accepting. Uh, you know, to be energetic, to be alive, to be present is to be right, in, you know, to be in that churning. And to stay, and just by staying in the churning, you are in that presence. You are with that energy and vitality, and you're present to the infinite possibilities. So it's not that I'm going to run away from it or I'm going to just, you know, accept it. But there are an infinite other possibilities if we just move away from the duality, which will be available to us. Yes. Yeah, so beautifully said. Everything that you've shared, Padma, is so beautiful. And thank you for bringing this to us, to sharing your wisdom and your gifts and all of your talents. This has been such an amazing conversation to have. I know we could go on much, much longer. I would love for you to share, how can people find you and how can they work with you? And do you have any current programs or offering that people can know about and any other things that we, we might get be able to find out about you? Uh, Whitney, thank you so much for um, offering this opportunity to, you know, to share uh, my practices. And yes, I'd love for women to engage with the practice in whatever way they can. And I have uh, a few different offerings. You can find um, all of them on my website, which is moving, M-O-V-I-N-G, archetypes, A-R-C-H-E-T-Y-P-E-S, that's one word, movingarchetypes.com.au. And so if you are in Australia, I have uh, group programs that are uh, offered uh, four courses a year, and there are come and try classes that are regularly offered and they're free. You can come in. And sometimes I also have women from other places. I have women from Canada and in Europe and from Europe, if the time suits you, you're very welcome to join us for those courses. But if you are outside of in, inside or outside of Australia, and if you feel called to a more intimate practice, because that's really the heart of this practice is that one-to-one uh, accompanying. That's how it was done. And that's where the practice really comes into its full power. Um, then I offer a six-month individual program where I accompany you in in um, invoking a goddess of your choice. And um, if if you feel called to do that, I offer a free one hour, no obligations conversation. And you can find out if the practice is uh, something that uh, will will fit for you in, in your life in these times. I also offer uh, weekly practices on my Facebook channel and on YouTube. So if you just want to get a taste of the practice, you you might um, find practices there. You can also sign up to my newsletter where I share with you fortnightly the philosophy practice, free webinars, and other ways. So there are many ways you can engage with the practice. I'm really passionate about sharing this practice uh, with women all over the world because I, I do feel that this is very important. This is something that's going to offer us a way out of the stranglehold which we seem to be in the times we live in. So um, any way that you feel called to engage with the practice, I'll be honored to uh, practice with you. So many fantastic offerings. Thank you so much. 
Padman, I was um, wondering if maybe we could finish with, if you could, if you had like a little, little simple practice that a little take home for the audience that could kind of incorporate some of the stuff that we've, we've chatted about today. Sure. So join me in this really simple practice because, you know, talking about dance, it's always a tricky thing to do. So I just want to give you a taste of coming into your body. So I'm uh, hoping that you might all be sitting down perhaps to listen to this podcast. Um, So if you are, um, just drop your feet into the floor. If you're sitting cross-legged, uncross the legs and just plant your feet in the floor, bring your weight into your sitting bones. So lean back and just find your weight. The important thing is to connect with your weight in the body. And that's weight is the dynamic of presence in the body. And then just plant your feet in the ground so you can Feel a little bit of weight through your feet. Open the feet, soften the feet, spread the feet, and just allow yourself to feel the ground, you know, just pressing the feet into the ground, pressing your sitting bones. Lift up the chest and spread and open it and drop the chin so the back of your neck is long. And you can bring your hands, just laying them effortlessly on your lap, palms open to the ceiling and just connect with your breath. You don't need to do anything especially with your breath, but the important thing is to feel the pressing of the feet in the floor, your sitting bones, the weight through the sitting bones. And then I'm going to invite you to just allow some tap, tap a rhythm out with your feet. Whatever rhythm is there, you don't need to make up a rhythm. It can be completely irregular. Don't think a rhythm's got to be a count one. Just tap out whatever is there, just tapping. And it doesn't have to be continuous, ongoing, can be bursts. And now I'm going to invite you to give some sound to the tapping, if you had to put some rhythm sounds to the tapping. So this is actually a practice from the Nati Shastra, that 4,000 year old dance text. So we do it standing up, but I'm just, you know, you can do it standing up if you want, then you put all your weight in your feet, but if you're sitting down, it's in your sitting bones and the feet. So now I'm just going to give voice to my rhythm. Follow the feet. So the the thing is, when you start giving voice, suddenly your mind will start leading. We want to always give the feet the leadership. So start the rhythm, then follow it. Keep breathing. And start making some sounds so you can move from the words into
Remember, it's good every now and then to just check that you are indeed leading with the feet and suddenly the sound hasn't taken over. So this is a way of bringing the mind into your lower body. So in the dance that I do, we always lead with the lower body. And that's a, such an easy material way of moving from this top-down uh, embodied approach. We always, the body is controlled by the mind in so much of what we do. So here we're just leading very literally with the weight and the feet, the rhythm, and then we're following with the sound, which is more of the mind. And now just start bringing that rhythm into your fingers. And the upper body. Maybe your head is moving. And breathe. Always leading with the feet. And then just drop back into the feet only. Feel that weight and just gently bringing that to a close, but really press the feet into the floor. Deep breath. You can gently come out. So this is a really simple thing you can do when you're finding that you're really busy in your head and you're, you know, sometimes you're so full in the head and you feel almost paralyzed in the body, especially when we're working on computers and things for long periods of time. Really simple way of dropping into that connection, into that leading with that lower body and getting out of that head-dominated body because our body can feel very suffocated by this constant, you know, constraint by the, by the mind. So I, I hope that this gives you a little bit of a taste of what it's like to allow the body to lead consciousness. So lovely. Thank you so much, Padma, for sharing that with us. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for your work and all that you do, your beautiful message. And our thoughts go out to everyone in Australia right now with the, you know, the intense situations, the floodings. I'm glad that you're safe and well. I hope you continue to stay that way. We'll be thinking of you. Thank you, Whitney. Thank you so much again for the honor of um, sharing this with you. Like I said, I love what you do in the world. I love the integrity and the seriousness that you bring. I, I just love the way in which you engage uh, with the divine feminine and you know you you offer really important work uh, the the healing aspect of this is such an important uh, part of what women have to do in these times so I'm so happy and um, honored that you offer this service and also as I said through this podcast how you generously um, hold space for other women to share their offerings so thank you so much with me thank you thank you this is so lovely take care Padma bye-bye that wraps up our beautiful conversation with our wonderful guest. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Women Waken podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with others and come back for more. If anything you heard resonates, leave a review or send me an email at Whitney at womenwaken.com and check out the website, womenwaken.com. Have a wonderful rest of your day and don't forget to let your light shine and keep an eye out for your special gifts and magic.